The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Today we're going to look at, uh, you notice in your notes there are five convictions you need in order to be able to seek the kingdom of God. We've been looking at the book of Luke and it's filled with truth about the kingdom of God and just how important it is. And so today what we're going to do is look at these five convictions that we must have in order to seek the kingdom of God. That is to value it above all things and live our lives in pursuit of the the righteousness of God and the the reality of the kingdom of God in this world. Uh, So we're going to look at these five things. You heard this morning from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's really quite a, a mindset to have because it's, it's a great tendency among us to constantly worry about the smallest things in life. We're worried whether this we're going to be able to provide for ourselves, our families, and so forth. And yet Jesus gives us this simple answer. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these things will be added unto you. And I'm sure that most of us here could say, amen, that's exactly how God has treated me. It's exactly how he's worked in my life over the years as I have followed him. But I want to start with, uh, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 18. I'm skipping over a part of this chapter because we're going to come back to it down the road. Um, And when we look at prayer. But this morning I want us to look in chapter 18. We're actually beginning in verse 31. Uh, And the very first thing that we see here is that we have to come to the conviction and understanding that that the the kingdom of God must center on the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son will be accomplished. Now what they should have done is understood immediately what Jesus was talking about. They should have under, remembered what the prophets had written about the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, Isaiah 53, and about his death and resurrection. And, he, and it says in verse 32, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Now he's telling them what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Now think of this, he's leading them to Jerusalem, and we're told that their hearts were full of fear because they knew that was the wrong place for him to go because he was going to be confronted and mistreated. But Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen. He says, he that is the son of man will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, that is beaten him to a pulp, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. And then get this, verse 34. It says, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the, th- comprehend the things that he was saying. Amazing. Um, Jesus predicts his arrest, his suffering, his death, his resurrection that's awaiting him in Jerusalem, and that's where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. It's the reason it says he's going up to Jerusalem. He's going from the north to the south, but it's a higher elevation. Jerusalem is on a hill overlooking all that's around it, and so they're going to go up to Jerusalem. And he reveals to them what's going to happen to him, but it says they didn't understand any of it. The sayings were hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. But these are really crucial things. These are the most important things. Luke is showing us no matter what they understood about the kingdom, uh, 
and about Jesus, the thing that they need to understand most of all was the final act of this drama of the coming of Christ, including the passion, the suffering of Christ, that is, and the resurrection from the dead. That was at the heart of his message. That's what he had been preaching, and they had heard it over and over again. And yet they didn't understand it. I can relate to that, can't you? Have you had that happen to you? You read the word of God and you say, wow, I I don't get it. Well, it takes the spirit of God to open our eyes, doesn't it? It takes the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our central message. It's the gospel of Christ that he was, he was hung on a cross. He was crucified, buried, resurrected. I was reading this thing the other day about when the cross, the, 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 a little, the little gold cross that many of us know about, people wear, or, or a cross you put on the wall. Those crosses did not become a symbol of Christianity until the last person who had ever seen a crucifixion had died. In the Roman Empire, the emperor was the one who instituted this as the symbol of Christianity. But before it became a symbol in nice jewelry that looks beautiful, maybe has some diamonds in it, it was a method of torture, horrible, horrible torture. And so it never did gain that status in the church until after that last generation who had seen crucifixion, which was the worst kind of execution, had had passed away. And so today, we have crosses in our buildings, we have crosses down in our building on the front. It's a symbol of Christianity because it's it's a picture of Christ's dying on the cross. But there's nothing beautiful about the cross. It was a wretched, horrible experience that Jesus experienced. He came into the world, God came into the world, was born as a human being, So the God-man, who is fully God and fully man, came into the world, and he was rejected by those he came to. As John says, he came into his own creation, and his own people didn't receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. But at the end of his life, and that's what we're talking about here, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and he is arrested, and he is tortured, and he is beaten, and then he's hung on a cross, and he's executed as a common criminal. And sometimes uh, people want to forget about the cross. Sometimes people will ask that. Why do you Christians are always talking about the cross? It's the central message of Christianity that Jesus died for sinners and he was buried and resurrected. And so without the cross, we don't have anything. Some of you grew up in Sunday school, I assume, you really don't look like Sunday school graduates, but um, I assume some of you grew up in Sunday school and you learned a song, Onward Christian Soldier, uh, Marching as to War, with the cross of Jesus going on before. What Luke is showing us here, he's underlining it, is without the cross, we can't go anywhere. The kingdom of God has at the very center of it, living in the kingdom of God has at the very center of it the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he underlines this by showing how dull-minded the apostles, the followers, the disciples of Jesus were. They didn't understand what he was telling them. But this is the message that came to us in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much full conviction when we've turned to Christ in faith. Billy Graham died this past week, as you all know. And I'm sure you've read this over and over again, but he spoke to more people face-to-face, personally, 
as he preached than any other human being. He gave the gospel more times to more people than any other person who's ever lived. That's amazing, isn't it? And uh, he was faithful. He was a man of integrity. And he was faithful to the end. Now, he, he, I'm sure like the rest of us, he did some foolish things uh, that he's criticized for so much. And yet he was a faithful servant of Christ who proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the heart. That's at the very center of the kingdom of God. The next thing that Jesus tells us, shows us here, is in verses 35 through 42, that the, the kingdom must be revealed through, the, through Christ's work. It's through what Christ does. This is what draws people to him. It's the work of Jesus Christ and the lives of people that draw people to Christ. Notice this text. In verse 35, it says, And Jesus was approaching Jericho. He's going, on his, going through Jericho to go to Jerusalem. As he's approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing, and he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David. In other words, he had heard about Jesus. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And like most of us would do, the people around him uh, began to talk to him very sternly and told him to be quiet. You're being a distraction. But notice in verse 40 it says, But Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. I love this. I have always been stunned by this. They bring a blind man to Jesus. They had to lead him there. He was obviously blind. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? I've often thought, What would you say if Jesus were to say that to you? If Jesus were to say to you today, What do you want me to do for you? Well, this man said, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, we see faith demonstrated simply by him believing that Jesus could heal him, which is an impossibility. And Jesus heals him, and Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. That is your trust in me. He had so much trust in Jesus that he actually asked him to restore his sight. Immediately he regained his sight, and he began following him. He began following Jesus, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. What's going on here? Well, this is a great picture of the fact that entering into the kingdom of God always is a result of the work of Christ. When Christ works in someone's life. Now, maybe you've never seen a blind man healed, but you certainly have seen people who are spiritually blind come to have eyes to see and enter into the kingdom of God. We see people's lives radically changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're coming to to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's wanting us, Luke is wanting us to understand that the way that a person is drawn into the kingdom is through the revelation of Christ's work. That Christ is doing supernatural things, even miracles. Now, I know many of us, most of us have not seen miracles. Some of us have seen secondhand. We've seen miracles take place. God do miraculous things. Uh, there's a funny story. The man who started the vineyard movement, I can't remember his name, but he, when he got saved, he used to be the manager of the Righteous Brothers. He was a musician, and he got saved. And so he was going to this church, and he said, he went up to the pastor afterwards, and he says, okay, I want to ask you something. When are we going to do this stuff? And the pastor said, what stuff? What stuff are you talking about? 
you know, the, the miracles and raising the dead and healing the sick. When are we going to do that? And he says, oh, we don't do that. We pray about it. We want God to do those things, but we don't do those things. We, we simply, we have a desire to see that happen. And he says, you've got to be kidding me. I gave up my whole career to follow Jesus, and you're telling me that we don't do the stuff? No, what we do is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people who are headed in the opposite direction of the living God are turned, and they begin to follow Christ. Their lives are radically changed, as we're going to see in this next little scenario here. Because entering into the kingdom, your heart must be completely captured. That's the third thing that he shows us here in these stories, is that the kingdom of God must capture the whole heart. And notice how this is told to us. In chapter 19, the first 10 verses, we're told, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. You remember the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And he climbs up in a sycamore tree because he, he's not very tall. Now, the average man in Jesus' day, and so we assume this was about his height, was about five foot seven. This guy must have been four foot eleven. But it says, there came a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. The Jews considered him to be a sinner. They considered him to be a crook. A thief, because he was an agent of the Roman government, and he collected taxes. And he made his living by charging him more tax than Rome demanded so that he could have a profit. And so Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was, of small, in sta- he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through this, that way. Jesus was passing through. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, he knows him. This is the son of God. And he knows who this man is. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay in your house. He, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, when the people saw it, they began, all began to grumble saying, He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. He's a crook. Why does Jesus care about this man? Why would he want to go to his house? Zacchaeus stopped. When he heard what they were saying, and he stopped, and he says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Would you like to meet a tax gatherer like that? And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He's a man of faith now. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I don't know if people realize it, but when you go and sit in a church, you're basically saying, I was lost and undone without Christ. And he came into the world and sought me and brought me into the fold. And I sit here with these other ex lost people worshiping the living Christ. That's who we are. So what he says here is, how hard is it for those, back in chapter 18, verse 24, it says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? No, No needs. It's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus says, but what is impossible with men is possible with God. 
Hallelujah. What's impossible with men is possible with God. And Zacchaeus was just such a rich man, and he was brought into the kingdom. The simplest way. Christ says, this, is, this was uh, Jesus' form of, of uh, evangelism. You want to know how to do evangelism? Here's one way. Tell people you're going to come over to their house for dinner. That's what Jesus did. And Zacchaeus was glad to have him. Now, this passage, verses 9 and 10 especially, correct wrong ideas about the kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God can even bring wealthy people into the kingdom of God. And here that same miracle is described as salvation coming to this household. See, that's what it means to enter the kingdom. It's salvation. We're brought into a right relationship with Christ, the Son of Man, the King of glory, the High King of heaven. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. You see, entering the kingdom is salvation. When you got saved, you entered into the kingdom of God. And you begin to live under the rule of Christ. And so, for example, you find it compelling when you read the commandments of Jesus in the New Testament, you find it compelling to obey his word and his commandments. And you begin to live differently. And that's what happened to this man. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But what are the, what are the people thinking here in this situation? Well, in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. You know what they thought was going to happen? They thought Jesus was going to set Israel free from the rule of Rome. They were going to be a free nation again. They thought the Messiah was going to come and do that. And so they were very disappointed in Jesus. They're seeing the kingdom backwards, you see. They saw the kingdom first and foremost in terms of social change and politics, but they had the, ma- they had the whole message backwards. Zacchaeus' entry into the kingdom is described as his salvation, and his salvation was primarily a, a spiritual matter. His soul was changed and saved. His heart was changed. He was, uni- he was, he was saved, and he was universally known as a sinner, and yet God saves him. He had a radical change of character. He decides he's going to, if he's cheated anybody, he's going to refund them four times what he stole from them. That's a changed heart. Now, what, what was being changed here is not primarily institutions and politics, but the heart. A lost soul has been saved and he's been changed. And now he's going to live differently from this point on. This description of Zacchaeus gives good hope. For the, that the other changes that they were hoping for, social changes and politics and so forth, it's going to change. This guy was a crook. But the miraculous power of the kingdom ends up transforming him. In other words, his world will begin to change because his heart has been changed. This is the issue in the Christian life. The issue in the Christian life is always, always, without exception, in the Word of God, it's your heart. Where's your heart? It isn't, are you doing this, are you doing that, or you're not doing this, not doing that. It's, what's the condition of your heart? 
What's filling your heart right now? What's controlling your heart? You know, there's a little simple principle, and that is that this is what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God speaks to us through his word. God speaks to us through his word. When, when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, he means all scripture is created by God. Now notice he said all scripture. Pasagraphe theanustas. All of the written scriptures are God-breathed. You want to hear from God? A lot of people think God has gone silent on them. He's not speaking to them anymore. No, that's not the problem. The problem is you're not listening. He's given you this word that is God-breathed. I know, I know, you read this and you go, that's just so confusing to me. It's so confusing. Well, that's what you usually say after 10 minutes, your first 10 minutes of reading the Bible. This is so confusing because I don't know, I don't know the story. You know, the Bible is a complete story. You understand that, right? It begins with creation and then the fall and then the whole plan of redemption and finally the complete restoration of the, of the creation. It's a story. It's a complete story of redemption. And so we need to spend time understanding what this story is so that when I dip into the Bible, I'm understanding where I am and what's going on, but God wants to speak to me through his word. He wants me to understand what it's saying, and all of a sudden it dawns on me. This has great implications for my life. Now, don't seek for those implications first. Seek for the meaning of the text. But I just want to say, this is how God speaks to his people, through his word. If he speaks to you in a still, small voice, if he speaks to you in a dream, if he speaks to you with an audible voice, hey, praise the Lord. But that's not the primary way he's going to speak to you. And I would never take that as authoritative over my life unless you could show me in the word of God, this is what God says. The word of God speaks clearly to me about how I should live my life. How I should treat my wife and my children and you. How I should live before him. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear the voice of God. I once had, I think I probably told you this a dozen times, but when I was in college, there was a guy in school with us. We're in a Baptist college. And this guy told us that Jesus came into his room often in the middle of the night and spoke to him. So there's a bunch of us standing around. And so I simply said, what did he say? And he says, well, I don't remember. You've got to be a knucklehead. (laughs) Jesus speaks to you and you don't remember what he said? That's amazing, isn't it? But you see, where we find, where we come to hear the word of God is the word of God, the Bible. We come to hear God's voice in the Bible. It's God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's the reason we preach the Bible is because we know that this is God's voice speaking to his people. And our responsibility is to plead with God to allow us to proclaim the word of God with accuracy, clarity, and relevance. That we can be honest with what the text is saying and we communicate it so that the people of God can hear the word of God and know that God has spoken to them through his word. And so the the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God means your heart is going to be completely captured. I mean, think about Zacchaeus. Here's a guy that's made his living by finagling and and charging people more than they had to pay so that he would have a larger profit. 
And all of a sudden, he enters the kingdom of God and he wants to change his life. He starts living completely differently. Isn't that amazing? You see, that's miraculous. It's miraculous for God to change your heart and my heart. That's exactly what he does. And this gives hopes to us. It gives hope to us that God is going to change us. He's going to sanctify us. He's going to... You know what sanctification is, by the way? Sanctification in the scriptures is always relational. It's us being set apart more and more unto God. We become closer and closer to him. He understands us and we understand him better. We are set apart. And Jesus said, he prayed to the Father, sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. How do we come, become more, how do we come closer to the living God? How do we become sanctified increasingly? It's by continually to approach him, to listen to him. It amazes me. It's so much easier for me to watch three hours of the Olympics than it is to spend three hours listening to God speak through his word. Isn't that crazy? Don't you admit it? That it's, it's like, here I have this book, 66 books. 66 different books in this library of the Bible. And God speaks to me through that. He wants me to understand what it's saying, and then he will show me how, what implications it has for my life. If I start with the implications, I never get to the meaning. And it's like a Bible study where people are sitting around saying, what does that mean to you? It doesn't mean anything to me. What does it mean to you? Well, this is what it means to me. Yeah, no, that's not the question. The question is, what does it mean? And once you understand what it means, you'll begin to see what it means to you and for you, what the implication is for your life. So I would say, stop spending so much time trying to hear an audible voice and start spending time listening to God speak to you through his word. And if you're, fine, if you're having a hard time understanding, dig in more. Expose yourself more. Begin to memorize scripture. Silas and I have been meeting in a um, discipleship meeting for a few weeks, and then he got, all of a sudden they put him on six tens. You know what six tens are? Some guy like Jeff caught, is forcing this guy to work six tens. Can you imagine that? And so we couldn't meet anymore, but he kept on memorizing the verses. And so every Sunday morning he comes over and he says, this is what it says. And he quotes to me the verse that he's memorized. If you want to ask him later, what difference has this made in your life? I can tell you it's made a huge difference in all of our lives as we come to know the word of God and hear the voice of God speaking to us specifically. The kingdom of God. Is it already or not yet? Have you heard that? That this is already not yet kingdom? Well, is it already or not yet? Well, it's both. That's why it's called the already not yet kingdom. It's already from the very first coming of Christ onwards. In, for example, in chapter 17, Jesus said, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and he said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look here or look there. There it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What did he mean by that? The King James, I think, says it's in you. you." But what it's talking about is Jesus was in their midst, and that meant that the kingdom of God was in their midst because he's the king. 
So the kingdom of God is coming in the future, he says, in his fullness. But it's also not yet. It's, it's not only here now because we have Jesus in our lives, but it's not yet. In that we await for the second coming. Jesus is coming back. History as we know it is going to change drastically when he comes back. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So should we then change our ways as we see it getting closer? We shouldn't have to. We ought to be living for Christ in a way, trusting him, believing him, responding to him as our Lord, so that when he comes, we're going to be living the same way, in trust in Jesus Christ. So as we wait, uh, are things going to get better or worse? Both. And what we find out is Jesus tells a parable. Verse 11. Well, they were saying, listening to these things. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That is, they supposed that Jesus was going to take his throne and set Israel free from Rome and do all these external things. And so Jesus says to them, he gives them a parable to explain that the kingdom hasn't, isn't going to come in its full, fullness yet. There's the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. And so he says a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then, and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10, ten minas. That's about 20 grand, $20,000 today. That's what it would amount to. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas, $200,000. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, Master, has five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, is your, uh, is your minna which I kept put away? In, is, here is your minna that I put away in a handkerchief. I buried it because I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am exacting man? That's what you said about me, right? Taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow, then why did you put my money in the why didn't you put my money in the bank? Having come, I would have collected it with interest. Now today you'd get about point zero zero three, right? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the minute away from him and give it to the one who has ten minutes. And they said to him, Master, he has ten already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. That's a parable. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's revealing something about himself and his kingdom. And this is, this is the uh, fourth thing, by the way, and that is that the, the kingdom must grow through the rest of history. History. 
it's going to continue to grow because Jesus has taken a trip to get his kingdom. Now, this is based on a true story, a true historical fact. And that was that uh, Herod the Great died, and his son, Archelaus, wanted to take the throne of his father. And so he had to go to Rome to petition them to let him rule in his place. But you know what happened? There were a bunch of people, his subjects, who hated him. And so they sent a delegation to Rome to tell him, we don't want him as our king. And so when he came back, there were two kinds of people he came back to. There were his servants who cared for him, and there were those who were his enemies. And Jesus is saying that's exactly the same with the Son of Man. He's gone away to get a kingdom. He's gone away to the Father, but he's coming back. You know, the, the Bible says, uh, in fact, in Luke it even quotes this. He says that John wrote, or rather David wrote, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You want to know when Jesus is coming back? You could put it on your calendar. Wouldn't it be nice to know when he's coming back? Well, guess what? Here's what we do know. He's coming back after his enemies have been made his footstool. Because the father said to the son, when he ascended to the father, he said, sit here at my right hand on my throne until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's been in process for 2,000 years. And when that, is, that work is completed, Jesus is coming back to take his kingdom. And so that's what this parable is about. How long do we have to wait? Well, according to Luke 20, verse 43, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, the footstool for your feet until your enemies bow to you. That's when it's coming. That's when he's coming. If you get that figured out, let me know. We can put it on our calendar. Otherwise, we'd live every day as though he might come today. He may come today. So are things going to get better or worse? Well, they're going to get both as we wait for him to return. His enemies are going to be plotting against him, and his servants are going to be working for him. By the way, we are his servants. And he has, told, he has shown us how to serve. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just follow my example. That's what we are to do as the people of God. There's one last thing here, the fifth thing, and that is the kingdom of God must reach to the ends of the earth. Here's what's going on in verses 41 through 44 of um, chapter 19. Listen to this. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, so he's almost there, he's approaching Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why did he weep? Well, listen. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, that is Jerusalem, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground. They're going to level Israel to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They didn't recognize Jesus as the coming of Messiah and the city's going to be destroyed. He's saying this in about 33 AD. When it came was about 40 years later in about 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. You think, well, wait a minute. Jesus is supposed to rule in Jerusalem. 
And what he's saying here in this section is, oh no, he's foreseeing the ruin of Jerusalem and it's breaking his heart. And so Luke's correcting this misunderstanding about the kingship of Jesus. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but he comes in sight of his presumed capital, what they thought this would be really a big deal for Jesus to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, but it's not big enough. Jesus is king, but the earthly Jerusalem is too small to contain his majesty. In Isaiah 49, listen to what God says to the son. He says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations. That's us. So that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. If you don't think Nitsen is the ends of the earth, you've got another thing coming. This is the ends of the earth. And Jesus has come here. All nations are going to be his. He's the savior of the world. He's going to return and he'll reign over his people, but in a much greater way than they ever realize. He's going to reign over the entire world. In the meantime, we take the gospel of the kingdom to the world over which he's going to reign. And every time somebody comes to faith in Christ, they come under the reign of Jesus Christ. They're supernaturally changed. Their heart is turned They begin to love Christ above all things. It's an amazing change, isn't it? What happens when you get saved is your heart is turned towards Christ and you begin to love Christ. And if you're not loving him, there's something going on that needs to be changed. There needs to be a repentance, a turning back to him. He's the only one you will ever meet that is worthy of your total heart worship and love. And that's exactly what takes place. Can you see what Luke's doing here? He's, he's reiterating and underlining the great themes of Jesus' message as we've seen it unfold through Luke. In 443, he said, he came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. In chapter 1815 through 1944, where we just looked at, he describes the king's royal progress to his capital. But Luke wants to bring out the real meaning of this kingdom. So he turns his eyes away from the ultimate glory to the suffering that he's going to experience in Jerusalem, the city that they should have welcomed him as king. And some did. As he went in this triumphal entry, they cried out, Hosanna. They saw him as the king coming, but then he's going to be crucified. And so Luke turns our attention away from the political transformation of the society. A lot of times what Christians want to see happen is we get all upset about the fact that the United States isn't filled with Christians. We actually pass laws and policies that are anti-Christian. Why does that surprise us? Jesus has not come back yet, but he's coming. And so we stand up for him in his absence, but we're not discouraged by the fact that this world is at war with God. But we are at peace. He calls us, Luke calls us to think in terms not of immediate success and quick returns, but a long delay. He's going to be gone for a long time. 2,000 years is a long time, isn't it? Even for me, that's a long time. But he's coming back. He may come back this week. So he refocuses our gaze to see the king as the one who has, in fact, been given the nations as his heritage. And so we are told, go into all the world and make disciples. You know why he said that? Because right before that, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, 
Go and make disciples of all the nations. You, you get what that means, don't you? It means that you've got the authority as a follower of Jesus Christ to go anywhere in the world and make disciples. Anywhere in the world. We got the Bogues in Mauritania, and they're over there in this Muslim country, and they've got the nerve to make disciples of Jesus Christ in this Muslim country. Guess what? Jesus Christ has authority over all the world. All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. So you can go anywhere, including to your neighbor, to your neighborhood, anywhere that you go. Because Jesus is coming back to reign over this world. And you're simply announcing the good news that Christ has died for sinners. And that a person can be made right with God, be reconciled to God, simply by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ who's coming back to reign. And so Luke wants us to learn the gospel. God's given his only son to die on a cross. Amazing. And by virtue of that death, he offers the hearts of men salvation from sin and a brand new life. Don't you love being a Christian? Isn't it great to be a follower of Jesus? Say amen. Amen. It's glorious. It's the most wonderful thing in all of life. And we are a people because we have rested our faith in Christ. And if you're here and you haven't rested your faith in Christ, we want you to know Christ. It's the best thing we could ever do for you is to lead you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we're always available to talk to you about him. If you have questions about him, if you have confusion about him, please come and talk to us. We want to communicate to you the truth of who Christ is because he's coming back. He's coming back. We sing about it. We pray about it. We rejoice in it. Uh, Jude tells us one of the things we have to do if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God is to be continually rejoicing in anticipation of the coming of Christ. He's coming back. And he's king. And he's coming back to rule. And we already live under his rule. He's a benevolent, glorious king. And we rest completely our faith in him. So throughout the history of Christianity, from the time of Christ until the second coming, this entire time, we are told that God has given us the assignment of going into all the world and telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you've got to go to the DMV this week and you get an opportunity to talk to somebody in the line who's upset as you are about how long it takes, you could say, you know, that's sometimes I get to feeling that way about Jesus coming back, because I know he's coming back, but it seems like I wish he would have come 10 years ago. But he's coming back. He has perfect timing. These people, the DMV, don't have perfect timing. But Jesus does, and he's coming back. And he's at work in your life to prepare you for that coming. Let me pray. Our Father, thank you for the word of God that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that your voice is clear and it's penetrating. And it's always exactly what we need to hear. We thank you, Father, for your love for us and sending your son. You continually recommend your love to us by the, the fact that your son died for us while we were yet sinners. And so we pray today as we live for you. As we live our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, give us opportunity to bear witness of you, we pray. Bless us this week, Father, and give us encounters. Give us opportunities to tell the truth about Jesus Christ to those who don't know him. And I pray for anybody that's here that doesn't know Christ, that you would draw them to him, that you would give them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, 
All I have to do to be saved is is to declare with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, to believe the gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would bring this message home to the hearts of every person here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.